Hello, my name is Julie King and this is the Bonnelly Tourism in a New Era podcast. Each week I'll be interviewing global leaders in the complete tourism supply chain. We will hear how they've adapted, challenges they've faced and overcome, new measures in place and how they are innovating in marketing to rebuild confidence. For the next three weeks, commencing today, the Thursday, the 3rd of December, we will be sitting down with global travel leaders to hear about the measures they're taking to focus on sustainability of their business, the industry and the planet. We will also discuss their outlook for 2021 and the new way of tourism and what they hope to see countries adopt as borders open. So today I'm delighted to welcome back Liz Anderson, Managing Director of Sundowners Overland. Liz, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to me twice in two weeks. You're welcome. (laughs) We had such a great conversation last week on the Unite on Purpose Summit Masterclass, along with Brett Mitchell from the Intrepid Group and Neil Rogers from Adventure World Travel. So today I want to get a bit more into depth on your business and how you see the future of the industry Mm -hmm. and travel. So we'll start, we're talking about impact. And Liz, what a year 2020 has been for all of us. And particularly for you, based in Melbourne, you've also experienced some of the longest and toughest periods of lockdown. So how difficult has this been for you to operate a business in, not only through a global pandemic, but also through extended lockdowns? And what are the challenges you've faced with the travel partners your business deals with, both locally and internationally? I can't really believe that we are almost at the end of this year, and thank goodness we are. Really, this started for me, I would guess, around Australia Day last year. So that was when we first started to get those indications that China were going to shut their borders. And because we concentrate on journeys that Predominantly, most of our tours would start or end in Beijing. So we do, you know, Trans-Siberian Railway and, and Central Asia. We sort of knew that it was going to have an impact quickly. And we'd lived through SARS. So we knew that acting swiftly was going to be important, regardless of how long the impact of this was going to be. And I certainly would never have predicted it was going to go on for so long or so extensively. But we did decide to take action quite quickly. So from February, we started restructuring the business and resizing it in order to be able to say, well, we know that there are going to be tours, certainly in the first half of the year, that were going to be impacted. Probably at that stage, we anticipated that we would still have journeys running in the second half of 2020. But obviously, things you know evolved from there. So unfortunately, I guess the one of the main initial impacts was on people. And then, as you say, in in Melbourne, certainly from mid-March, we went into lockdown. So that was relatively easy for us to manage in terms of moving to a virtual environment. Like we're very, you know, in the cloud, as it were, as a business anyway. So in terms of being able to shift people to working from home, that was relatively smooth, I would say. But there are obviously challenges within that because as we were all grappling with those you know, situations that were happening on the ground, dealing with clients who are still in location and bringing them home, and also then trying to start that process of picking bookings that were in place, it's always harder when you're at a distance and you're not then with people physically in a room to actually sort of brainstorm what do we do next and so on. But I think that We've probably adjusted reasonably well to being at home. And actually, we will now be virtual for the foreseeable future. So we've sort of ended the lease on our office and so forth. So we're literally at that point of going into 2021 saying, 
I'll be at home. This is going to be the new normal. And then how do we find ways to, you know, meet with clients or whatever going forward? Yeah. And has that been easy to then structure the way forward now to make that decision and say, this is how it's going to be for the future and, and, and I guess still keep that culture? We have a relatively... We have some people who work with the business for a really long time and then other people who, you know, are younger, probably working from home, hasn't been the thing that they've had to deal with previously. So I think we were very conscious of that in those initial days and trying to have a lot of sessions with people in order to ensure that they did still feel included. And then obviously, you know, as with many businesses, as we've moved with having some people stood down and some people still working within the business, how do you keep them involved? And don't feel part of that team, even though they are stood down. It's definitely been challenging from that cultural side of things as well. And not to be underestimated, I think, going forward. In fact, that survey that came out last week from the Travel Industry Hub around the difference between the employer's versus employee's view on working from home, I think there are two very disparate views there, perhaps. And Ultimately, I think people need to be with people. So I think trying to find ways that then we will still be able to meet together and actually be together as a team on occasion is going to be important. That being said, we'll be a far smaller team, so probably easier to implement. And I guess there's many sort of service office operations where you can go in and use a boardroom for the day now that would help in that situation. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, even with meeting with clients, you know, we would have had some clients come in to see us on a, you know, particularly if they're doing a in-depth tailor-made journey. It's nice to have that face-to-face with them. So I'm sure that we will still find ways to make that happen. It might be that we're doing that in a coffee shop near them or, or whatever. So... And what were the biggest lessons that you learned as a business and as a member of the industry in the last nine months? And how will your business moving forward change apart from obviously, you know, moving to a virtual environment now? I think act early is is probably one of the things. And I'm, you know, as much as it was painful to have to do it, I am glad that we made decisions early because you can have the most optimism in the world, but ultimately, unless you make decisions, you're a bit sort of hamstrung and you're not in control of it. So I think that enabled us to feel that we were taking control in a certain way of what we were actually doing for the business as well. And I think that also enabled us to talk with our clients more effectively around, you know, we have been through situations before, we believe that we will get through this again. And, you know, how can we demonstrate that we are putting measures in place in order to get through that but also for the people still within the business you know that I think they need you to be taking action as well. As an industry I think we're very fortunate to belong in that tour operator space which broadly speaking I think has always been quite collegiate in terms of the support that we've all had for each other. I think through the work that we do with Cato and so forth, you know, it is a very nuanced area that if you're not in it, then people don't always particularly understand what it actually yes. is to do. So I think education has probably been a big piece in this as well, that all of us have sort of taken on that role, I think, of explaining to people, not necessarily even within the industry, but even people that we know around how do we actually fit in this? And if tour operators don't exist, this is going to be the long-term impact of that. So I think that's been, I mean, you always assume you know what people do for their job, but (laughs) I think it's been that education piece has been quite important. 
And going forward, look, I think a lot of the stuff that we do and, and probably the thing that we have always prided ourselves on is that sort of client experience and very tailored experiences for people. So I've always sort of had this mantra of the moment that we actually learn someone's name who contacts us. So if someone requests a brochure or whatever, and we actually know a little bit about them, they become part of that Sundowners family. And then they are part of that family for as long as we choose or they choose for them to be on that journey with us. And that's been super important during this time. You know, we've been very lucky that a lot of our clients have personally contacted us to see how we're doing and, you know, yeah. offer support, even if they didn't have travel plans with us, but because they've traveled with us previously. So that's been, you know, that's lovely. Really, yeah. really lovely. Really nice um, connection. And I think that's because, yeah, I mean, you know, I've always sort of said it's names, not numbers and all those sorts of things. And we are small enough that we can have that connection with people. So. I think that will continue. And I think certainly in terms of the length of conversations that we have with people prior to travel, how many connection points we have with the people before they go so that you can continue that reassurance piece. All of that, I think, is going to be critical, that people feel that they are dealt with personally. So I think that's probably just building on what we've always done, but also then building on the flexibility piece. So a lot of our journeys long so you know it's sort of 21 days through to 50 days sort of thing and within that we've always had to have some flexibility in there so there might be a border that would have shut for some random holiday that none of us knew about or or whatever it might be and so we've always requested I guess some flexibility from clients as well and perhaps their trust in us that we would continue to deliver them a good experience regardless if it wasn't exactly what they thought they were going to do I think that mutual flexibility is going to be a feature in the future. So be that if someone feels uncomfortable with doing something on the ground and we have to adapt to that, or that we say to them, actually, a situation has come up, you know, and really then you're at the behest of those local governments or whatever that you're having to adapt to. I feel confident that we'll be able to adapt to it, but asking for that flexibility, I think, will be important. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think, you know, with your all of your crisis plans that you have in place normally and in, in the way that you operate, that those were robust enough in this situation? Or is this something that you will look at to keep strengthening on the way forward? Yeah, and I think that's a good question. Broadly speaking, yes. And, you know, we are very fortunate that, We've worked with most of our local partners in our destinations for 20 years, you know, some of them for even longer, which, so again, they're sort of part of that extended family. So I guess that trust is there in terms of, do they understand our expectations of what is delivered, client expectations and so forth? There are always things that you can improve, yeah. right? So, yeah, absolutely, um, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think that's going to be important for our tour leaders. So, you know, obviously, again, in fact, in March, I was doing tour leader training in St. Petersburg. The irony. And that, for me, is really around how do you adapt to client needs and yet still have a robust enough relationship, I guess, that if you need them to do something, you know how to deal with those situations. And I think that that's what comes into play when crises do happen on the ground you need to still be resolute in terms of this is what we need to get done absolutely but obviously have the empathy to to clients at the same time so 
Yeah, so I'm sure that we will review some of that. But in terms of do I think that there are great structures already in place in terms of defect warnings and so forth and needing to adapt to that on the ground, I feel that we would hear from local partners if they thought that something was going to be triggered and we needed to act. So, and our operations manager is actually based over in St. Petersburg. So it also means that, you know, we've got people in the right time zones at the right time, I guess, for situations. So Okay. And in terms of the support that you've been able to give to local in travel partners that book, you know, with you mm-hmm. and also, you know, your overseas on the ground destination management partners as well. You know, can you talk a little bit about what you've been able to do in this time, even through conversation and sort of keeping in touch with them? And broadly speaking, I would say that's what it's come down to, keeping in yeah. touch with them. So, you know, literally yesterday afternoon, I was talking to our partners in Azerbaijan, like I'm talking to the Uzbeks tonight. Like it's, And that to me is really important. And if anything, it's probably taught us a little bit that we would obviously have those face-to-face meetings at certain points in the year, either in destination or, or more likely at World Travel Market or wherever it might be. But it's been really lovely to actually have more regular connection points with them. And particularly in a year where we perhaps haven't been as busy as we normally are, it's kind of meant that you have that time to actually connect with them on a different level as well. So I think some of them have looked really relaxed as a consequence of this. They've enjoyed getting out (laughs) in their destinations and going hiking and seeing, you know, the beautiful parts of the world they live in. But also I think it's been interesting in terms of keeping that global view. So obviously, as you touched on, Melbourne has been in quite a unique situation. Mm. And I think you can start believing, A, if you only talk to people within travel, but B, only people within Victoria, that everybody has been in this really sort of myopic lockdown. And that's just not true. So talking to people, A, in different industries about perhaps how they've been flourishing but also to people around the world and what their local governments have done and the impact that that's had and and therefore people's propensity to travel again, I think is also important. So, you know, we sell globally and throughout this period of time, we have still had inquiry and interest come from the UK and Europe. You know, you can sort of believe that the borders will never open again in Australia, but then... When you're talking to people overseas who can travel and they're wanting to do that and go away, it's good because I think it keeps you balanced in terms of there will be a return to people traveling again. And they don't see as many obstacles to getting on that plane as we perhaps do here. Yeah, no, absolutely. And talking more on the collaboration side, how do you feel that your sector of the industry has come together during COVID and, and in what way has this changed since the beginning of COVID, do you feel that the sort of land supply sector of the industry has come more closer together? And and how have you seen that? Well, I think it's been a very equalising experience, right? It doesn't matter whether or not you're big or small, all of us have been impacted. And from that perspective, yeah, I think it's been good to have conversations with people across our sector from what are we doing and what can we do and, and so forth. I think through Cato as well, the work that we do there, I think that's been a really nice instance of people coming together and supporting each other. I hope that that does continue. So I think one of the things where, in terms of a sort of reset of where can we move to, I think we need to 
moved to that point where we're all talking about it's important for people to travel, but why is it important for people to travel? And we all know that, right? Because we know what benefit that that can bring to people. I feel like the industry is big enough but small enough that there is the right product for everybody to book on. And that might not be my product, and that's absolutely fine. And if I can recommend them to then go to a company that is more aligned with people's needs and wants, that's a good thing. So because that will mean that people travel in a positive way, they have a great experience, they come back and share that with others to then go on and, you know, I think have a, a broader view of why travel is important And I think that will continue because I think we all know that we've been impacted. So if we can be more collaborative from that perspective, I think that would be. And do you see that across the rest of the industry as well? And when I say rest of the industry, I don't just mean retail travel agents, but also hotels and and other sectors and, you know, crews, et cetera. Do you see everyone coming together in that space as well? Or has that felt a bit different as a global industry, not as just sector only? I mean, I think it's been quite interesting watching because obviously most of the advertising in in Australia at the moment is going to be more around that domestic travel. I like this as a shift that it's been more towards make the right choices, make those sort of conscious consumption decisions, actually be that regardless whether or not travel or something else that you're purchasing, but perhaps being more aware of the full supply chain of what you're purchasing particularly in our land sector I think we can do that very effectively by talking about our local partners and and making people aware that you know goodness if you booked on a 21 day tour with me there would be probably 10 or 11 local partners involved and then many many pieces within that be it then local guides or hotels or, or whatever it might be so I think people being more conscious that it's not just a you know, you're buying a package, but actually there are other people's lives and businesses caught up in that, I think is important. Absolutely. Um, I think being able to deliver that message to people around that decision. So here, domestically, I think there has been more advertising around choose local, but choose the boutique little hotel or whatever it might be. Yes. As opposed to just book on this because it's a great deal. And I think that hopefully we can see a shift away from just that sort of rush to the bottom line or that people's purchasing behaviour is kind of conditioned to wait for the sale or wait for the next campaign or or whatever, that actually it can be about make the right decision at the right time for you. Yeah. I think that would be a positive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Moving on, that's a nice segue into moving on to marketing Mm -hmm. um, now. So obviously we've discussed this before, but from our research and monitoring of trends, we're definitely seeing a shift in the style of marketing in this new era. And that shift is really shifting more from um, inspirational to human connected and emotional storytelling campaigns. Can you tell me a bit more specifically about how in the future that your marketing campaigns and what you're planning to do around those to shift in this time to adapt to this trend? Yeah, and I think one of the things, because, as I say, you know, we are very connected to our clients and past clients, I think we will probably see a shift to thinking more around what would be the right next journey for them. So when they do come back to travel with us again, and that's that's not always, you know, the next year, it might be a few years on and that's perfectly fine. But if they've done a full Trans-Mongolian before, you know, is it that they're then going to want to go to Mongolia in depth, which often is the way that people sort of get there, fall in love with it and go, I want to go back and see a little bit more. 
Or is there going to be another journey that we know they've enjoyed that style of travel so that we can then make suggestions for them from that perspective? So I think, yeah, probably some more tailored conversations around that. I think the other thing that we will, we've always done a lot of it, but I think this has probably accelerated the interest in it, is also emphasising to people that they can put together their own group. So have their own private group of people to travel with. So, you know, I think it's very early on. I was quite conscious of the fact that because there are these very different lived experiences of this pandemic around the world, bringing people together in a group who say someone's from Canada and someone's from the UK and some people are from New Zealand and some people are from Melbourne and some people are from Perth, they're all very different lived experiences. So then putting those 12 people together, how they react and how do you find that normal within that group for them? So I think initially there may well be a trend where people can say, I'm going to feel more comfortable traveling with the people that I know what their experience has been and I trust how they've operated through that period, which is lovely because it then means that you can create something that is unique to them as well. And again, building that flexibility, I guess, of what it is that they're actually looking for. So, yes, I think that private group marketing will probably be something that we increase. And equally, probably, and slightly akin to that, is that tailor-made travel, again, it's, it's a big part of our business, but... I suspect that that will increase as well, as long as you can provide people with reassurance that on the ground, should anything happen, you know, they are going to be well cared for. It enables them to feel in control of what that travel experience is going to be. Right. And do you think, obviously, from a channel perspective as to how you will go out in future with your marketing will change a lot. I mean, obviously, people are so used to being in that digital space now and they're day and night, you know, in that Does that have an impact on the way that you've previously marketed to where you're going to shift to in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think we, the same as a lot of others, have been heavily reliant on the physical printed brochure. Yeah. And I think that will change. So certainly haven't printed one for 2021, but I think that perhaps there will be an opportunity to have a showcase of journeys that demonstrate what you can do without it having to lock in here are the dates and prices going forward for the next two years that then people, you know, sort of wait in place to have more. So obviously with the change in the distribution space in terms of, you know, even just rack space for brochures in agencies, there is going to be a change from that. So I think that that online showcase will be important And I think that's always been countered by, we know that people like to flip through a brochure and come back to it and experience it in different ways. So perhaps we move more to, here's a showcase of the actual destinations that you can go to and more in-depth knowledge, perhaps from that perspective. And then the actual dates, prices, itineraries of how you can do that all live on. Okay. And in terms of innovation, how has your business innovated since the start of the pandemic? And can you tell us, you know, how you've done this and the thought process behind it? Or if you're in the process of innovating, you know, what is your thought process behind yeah, that for the future? I, I, look, I think for the last eight months, a lot of us have been in sort of survival mode more than yeah. full-on innovation mode. That being said, I think, you know, as with any businesses, you can get very used to doing the same things and when you become smaller again, it enables you to be more nimble, to be perfectly honest, and sort of adapt to that. So 
I think it makes you more conscious of what are the really important things to focus on. So there's probably a lot of periphery stuff that happens that do we really need to do that? Or is that just because we've got very comfortable with doing that, that actually enables a bit of a refocus on what do we want to carry forward with us, um, you know, with a reduced team initially. So I don't know whether or not that's truly innovation, but it's probably more around thinking around how would we deliver journeys differently? How would we have those connection points with clients? How do we enable them to have the conversations with us that we sort of know that they need to have in order to provide the reassurance to make that booking? I think that just back on that flexibility piece, that's probably where we will need to create some more bandwidth to really understand how that will work and I don't anticipate you know for our journeys people need visas to go to everywhere that we yes speaking everywhere that we go to so we're never going to be in a point where people just go oh I want to go and do a Trans-Siberian tomorrow and off they go so there will still be a booking time frame you know there's still big journeys there's still the sort of bucket list of items and I think that Whilst right now we're still in a point where people are reluctant to make decisions because they just don't know and there's still that uncertainty, I think as vaccines come in and all the rest of it and people get used to travelling again, I think that will soften and people will move back into making those longer-term decisions and starting to plan out, you know, two, three, four years' worth of travel again. And there might be some shift within that and they, you know, move things around. But... Broadly speaking, I think we all like to have something planned for the future and something to look forward to. So I do think that those trends will come back again and those behaviours will return. Will you look at technology very differently in the future, you know, because I guess we've all been so technically affected, you know, by what we do? Exactly. And I think some of the things where, you know, this has been such a great enabler. So say, for instance, with private groups, you know, typically we would perhaps have hosted an evening in the office and being able to bring people together and do a presentation and talk to them. I think what this sort of technology side of things enables us to do is actually bring people into that conversation who, you know, like their tour leader who's based in St. Petersburg or some of the local partners that they might meet to talk about those destinations in a different way. And that all just builds up that confidence in, you know, your knowledge and expertise, but also that you do truly have those connections on the ground. We're not just saying it so so I think that that's nice because you know some of those private groups they're not all going to come down to Melbourne to see us so if we can get to them in different ways I think that's a really powerful thing and also for agent training you know I, I think those days of people driving long long hours to visit agents all over the country perhaps will shift and that we find different digital ways to provide that information to them and be that, you know, online through our websites and agent logins and so forth and access to webinars on there, or I'm sure through their own platforms as well, that they will move to more having, you know, banks and webinars that people can choose. And I think that is important to be able to share that information in different ways. I think it would be a missed opportunity if we just try and go back to to absolutely. Has there been any innovation that you've seen within other sectors of the industry, either here or globally, or other people within your sector of the industry? Has there been anything that sort of stood out that you've thought, you know, that's that's a very clever concept? Well, I think yourself is a very good oh. example of that. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't what it was meant to be, though. <laughs> but it's true, right? You know, you've 
you've actually taken where we're at and thought about that differently and thought, how can we bring together people in a different way? And I think that that's been hugely positive. You know, it's, it's nice to be having conversations that are actually about the future. And it's not yeah. just about where are we right now? And you know, we can all feel sorry for ourselves, but actually it's done. It's done, you know, and, and hopefully yeah. the worst of this is now over. I'm not saying that there aren't still going to be some difficult months ahead for all of us because I think there are and we need to yeah. be realistic about that. But I do believe that now is the time for shifting that conversation to what's next. Absolutely. Um, you know, you say about different industries, I would say education has probably been one that... Yeah as much as you know no parent probably thought they were going to teach as much as they have this year it's been really interesting how quickly a sector that perhaps traditionally wouldn't have been deemed to be as flexible or as nimble has very quickly had to move to a very different way of operating and absolutely broadly speaking let's say successfully (laughs) um, not sure if the parents would say that I know I know I'm thinking my nephew and niece going "Hmm, have they actually very much this year but broadly speaking and I think that the children have shown the adaptability and 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 actually that's really lovely as well and perhaps a blended model, I think, is something that we can yeah. all retain from this. That, as I say, you know, I'm sure that many people are desperate to get back into an office. And I, I agree with that from the perspective of we do need to actually see people. But I do also think that you can build in a lot of efficiency by not having to do everything physically together. So, yeah. And I think also we've kind of seen that you know hours have become more flexible for people as well so they can build in everything while they're working from home and I think rather than everyone being very heavily structured around this is your hours starting in two I definitely have seen a lot more flexibility in how business is approached exactly and I think that with that is you know a high level of trust and if anything that's then good from a cultural perspective because you're saying you know I believe that you are well equipped to deliver in your role I don't need you to necessarily do that between nine and five. So I think that is a very lovely thing, actually. Um, and perhaps that's made people more connected. I, you know, going back to those local partners, as I say, we've probably talked more to them in the last few months than we have, you know, certainly over video calls and so on. So I think people can get very stuck behind email. And, and whilst there is perhaps still a balance to be found between every meeting having to be a Zoom meeting and yes. can still do think some things on the phone. It is, <laughs> I don't need to see people every day. Yeah. <laughs> it is nice to have those options there and for people to feel comfortable with that. I think it's perhaps given more people a voice within an organisation than they have previously as well. Yeah, absolutely. Moving on to trends, you know, we've talked previously about silo to integrated you know being a trend now but if we talk about a little bit more and we touched on it slightly earlier about the global to local and then local to global to be local and with that heavier focus on you know conscious consumption about consumers wanting those authentic experiences how do you see not just I guess your own product and, and how your business operates but how do you see the industry shifting in you know what it's really selling you know to the consumer in line because I think people are going to start dictating the need for that you know as a result of this and I think we've all got very used to the very kind of short trips and just going oh I'm just going to hop away here and do this and do that and become very 
busy but not in a good busy way of yes. travel and we would probably both be guilty of that as well that you just assume you can hop on a plane and get it done so I think that perhaps people going back to doing longer journeys or being away for a long period of time and either basing themselves in a destination for a longer period of time and then moving on and so forth yeah. will be a trend. And actually, I was thinking about this earlier in terms of youth travel as well, because I feel that we have a youth brand, Vodka Train, which over the past few years, I think when we first started that probably 12 years ago, it was at that sort of heyday of people doing the gap year and going away and doing the big journey. So they would use that to go from sort of Europe across to Asia and their six months in Asia traveling around. So, you know, it was part of a bigger journey. Yeah. And then I think we saw a shift away from people doing that and going, well, I'm just going to go and do three weeks or I'm going to go and do two weeks and come back again. And then I'll go and do a three week trip in Vietnam or whatever. Right which I think has just been a model that we've sort of shifted to. And maybe this is actually, as that consumer confidence increases again, perhaps we will still see people go, I am going to take some time out for myself, which I think has also been a trend this year that people have sort of gone, what can I do for me? And perhaps they go back to saying, is that a more rewarding way of travel rather than feeling that they need to get somewhere and tick off a bunch of sites or Instagram shots or whatever it might be, that actually they go back to saying, I'm travelling for travel's sake and what that will teach me as a person and those interactions again. Rather than just trying to tick off that list, absolutely. I think so. So, And I hope so because, again, I think that's something that's far more rewarding than just having a checklist of sites that you need to, to see. Yeah. And are you getting a lot of feedback from your customer database at the moment about how they want to travel in future? Is that something that's coming through at this stage or is it really? Perhaps still a little bit away from that happening. And and also probably just because of the restrictions that still exist within Australia at this stage. I think people are just that little bit, I would say by January, February, we'll really start seeing that true inquiry come back again. But the inquiry that we have been seeing has certainly been for our longer journeys. It's not been for the short stuff. So, which I find fascinating, but also very encouraging because if people are prepared to ask about a journey that goes to five different countries and, you know, they'd be away for 35 days, well, that's good. And I actually think what will happen is perhaps we then, as we start to move out of this, do start to readdress that sort of product portfolio as well and go, well, is it that people, you know, most of our journeys would be multi-destination, so just because of the distances involved and so forth, but perhaps it is more of a deep dive into two or three countries as opposed to covering five countries. So I think we will see a little bit of that. Liz, how do you think that will affect the accommodation product? Is that something that we think that accommodation providers are going to have to change because people ultimately want to stay longer in summer? Or do we think we'll see a shift of, you know, where people book because they want that value in, you know, extending that stay for a longer period of time and living more of a local experience? Mm, I'm just trying to actually think about, like, if I could imagine myself in Mongolia, for instance. So say yeah. someone said that they wanted to do a more in-depth journey there. I don't necessarily know that that will mean that they want to be based in one place within that country for longer. It right. might just mean that they're wanting to experience more of it so that they feel that they've really done that country. I mean, I, I hate that. Right. You know what I mean? It's sort of, 
So yeah. instead of just going to a capital city, will you spend a lot more time out in the countryside, but traveling around when you're there? Perhaps with sort of the destinations that we have in the Caucasus, so sort of Georgia, Armenia, and, and so forth, there I could see where people might go. I could go and base myself in Georgia for a couple of weeks, and yeah. that might then be in one of those sort of, you know, bigger cities, which is a very pleasurable experience because it's just like, you know, moving yourself to Paris for two weeks sort of thing, which or three weeks, which is mm, lovely. Be lovely, um, yes. <laughs> I know, like, let's go. I think we might see that. And therefore, I don't know, it's hard, isn't it? Will people want to do more homestays again? Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. Certainly boutique hotels where they can do longer stays. I could see that that would be something that people would ask for. Yeah, and maybe in terms of smaller amounts of sort of people gathering in yeah. those accommodation properties is yeah. maybe initially where they might feel yeah. a little bit. Typically speaking, like we try not to stay in super big hotels. Like there are some destinations where it's sort of unavoidable just because of, of where yeah. you are. But for the most part, they do tend to be smaller hotels and I can see that that will be popular going yeah. forward. Yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. So in your opinion, what do you think will happen in tourism in the next, locally and globally, over the next three to five years? Where do you see it shifting to from here? And I'm going to wrap that up also to make it a little bit easier around the sustainability element as well, because I know it's a big question. What changes do you think that the industry need to do to shift to ensure not only sustainability of the planet and society, but a stronger economy and their businesses, you know, on the way forward? I think... Not trying to do too much. So I actually think that the return to people, as in tour operators, focusing on what they know really well, I think will then enable clients to make more conscious consumer decisions. So I obviously say that from a space of being a niche specialist, but the reason that I like the fact that we just do Asia Overland is because it means that we know Asia Overland really well and can therefore really help people if that is what they want to do to right. achieve those goals. Right. So perhaps it is more of a refocus from people as well. Instead of saying we can be all things to all men, that we all go, actually, this is the bit that we can do really, really well for you. And let's focus on that. Right. In terms of actual behaviours, you know, again, I think there will be that initial shift of people saying, I don't want to be with big crowds and all the rest of it. But ultimately, Will people want to go to Paris and not go up the Eiffel Tower? I doubt it. You know what I mean? At Mm. some point, there will be that return to... I've always sort of had this belief that famous places are famous for a reason. Like, there is a a true reason why people want to see the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, and and I guess probably from an attractions point of view... That will be for them to look at how they curate that experience to be not as busy with, you know, big crowds and it might all be pre-booking and not sort of, you know, a certain amount coming in at certain times. Yeah. And that I think will be wonderful. So I think there will perhaps also be a move to people not traveling in what we've traditionally seen as high seasons. So with what we do, we've always advocated that if you can travel in Russia and have a good pair of boots, then in the winter, it's a good time to go because there are less crowds and therefore you experience the big cities in a completely different way. So seeing St. Petersburg when it's all snowy and white and, you know, rivers are frozen. Beautiful. It is. It's absolutely magical Mm. compared to being there in the height of summer when you've got lots of cruise groups coming in as well. So, you know, the big groups are there. Yeah. 
it's a very different experience from trying to shuffle around the hermitage when there are thousands of people in there to when you can walk the corridors of those palaces and really kind of reimagine yourself as it yeah. was at the time when they were first built. So, so it's really um, going from mass tourism to distributed tourism, I, I guess, in so. many ways. Yeah, I think so. And enabling people to do that and yeah. saying it's okay to go off season and actually it's potentially a better time to go. Yeah. I think will be good. And maybe that will then mean that those destinations start creating different reasons for people to travel at those times of the year. So say yeah. not to park on about Mongolia, but yeah. the Nalan Festival in July, it's sort of the Olympics of Mongolia. Everybody wants to go at that time of the year. So there's sort of this crush of people that come in in mid-July which, you know, 15 years ago, it still wasn't that popular. So it was actually still had that sort of quite quaint kind of, you know, local festival feel about it. Now it's big, you know, it's really big. There's lots of competition about getting tickets and so forth. But perhaps if there are other festivals or something that they can put on that we provide an opportunity for people to go and have a really good reason to travel to Mongolia at a different time of the year, that can be dispersed. So you just soften that curve of when people are traveling. Right. Okay. Your sustainability programs and responsible tourism programs and practices, have they evolved, in your opinion, since the start of the pandemic? Has that been something that you've looked at or is it something you're planning to look at as you move into this next phase? Yeah, I mean, I think broadly speaking, where we've always fitted within that is that we're using local transport. So we're on those local trains. We're not adding to adding to yeah. infrastructure in a destination in order to deliver those journeys. Right. And then also always using local guides. And most of our tour leaders, you know, are from Russia or Central Asia. So giving back to the economy, I guess, in that way, in those yeah. destinations has always been a really big thing about what we do. And a number of, you know, our sort of, well, in fact, our operations manager was a local guide when I was a tour leader. And, you know, she sort of evolved from there into a tour leader for us and then through to working for us. And, I think that will absolutely continue. I think that a lot of clients who travel with us probably make personal decisions around, you know, do they wish to offset their flights or whatever it might be. But I think they're probably sort of semi-consciously making that decision anyway by choosing overlapping travel instead of journeys that have lots of flights within them. So it would be very rare on our itineraries to get on a flight. Do you think that'd be something that you might elevate in terms of your messaging around, you know, what you're doing to contribute to those um, countries and things like that? Yes. And I think that, you know, we've never sort of made it front and centre of what we talk about. But I think that consumers do have those questions, right? You know, in some ways, where does their money go as well? So, which is important. So I think if we can talk about that and bring out those stories, you know, back to that sort of concept of storytelling as opposed to just saying you know this is our policy who are those people on the ground bringing out some of those personalities I think is important yeah absolutely and my last question is what advice from your experience so far would you give to other global travel partners who are evolving their business in this time and trying to be more agile to be ready for this new era I still think it comes back to really know what you're good at and focus on that for now like you know we all I think are going to come out of this a bit bruised and battered so knowing to go back to base and know what you do really well because that gives you the confidence to grow from that again I think is important have those really strong relationships on the ground like we 
we wouldn't have been able to weather many, many a storm that we've gone through and, you know, not just this without those local partners. And they really are critical because they also provide you, obviously, with that information of what's happening on the ground, of how things can open up again. And being connected with clients, I think, is also really important. So even if that means literally picking up the phone and having conversations with some of them around what are they going to look for in the future? There's no harm in asking them, particularly some of those sort of trusted people who've probably travelled with you three or four times. They're going to be the ones who are going to be making the decisions on when they travel again. So what is it that is the, the obstacle, I guess, for them to make that next purchasing decision? So, yeah, but I think just focusing on what you know well and then building slowly and safely from there again, I think is where we're all going to be at. Yeah, great advice, Liz. <laughs> Liz, thank you so much for generously giving us your time and valuable insights today. We look forward to bringing you back again into many more panels as we work together to shape the future of tourism. Good evening, good afternoon, and good morning. Good morning.